Well, we want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning. Great to be back after a a great uh, fruitful ministry trip with Not By Works, but always great to be home, always great to be back among family and uh, really uh, love you guys and enjoy, uh, enjoy our time here. So looking forward to getting back into the saddle with our study this morning on the end times and also in the 10 o'clock worship hour with our study through Acts. Really kind of cranking up in, in our study through Acts. We're getting to Paul's missionary journeys and it really, the church really begins to kind of take a whole new direction literally as they, they move westward and a lot of neat things happening as we get to chapter 13 this morning. So, yeah, well, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, begin. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for uh, your church, uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and for your many blessings in our midst. And thank you for the privilege that we have to come together uh, regularly and open your word and just uh, share together and uh, bear one another's burdens and rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And uh, Lord, we just give you this time today, pray that you prepare our hearts for the study of your word. May it encourage and uh, edify and nourish and convict. And Lord, uh, also we pray uh, that if there's anyone listening today or anyone here in this room that doesn't know you, that today they may be convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior and come in simple childlike faith to trust in your Son uh, as their Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive in with a few quick announcements. It's been uh, only one Sunday, but a couple of Wednesdays, and so a lot uh, going on with Not By Works Ministries. I want to make you aware of a lot of these videos that are now out there. Uh, it started out in Coeur d'Alene at Candlelight Fellowship. Great, great crowd. We've been going there for many years. Our dear friend, uh, Pastor Paul Van Noy up there. Uh, some of you may recall a couple of years ago, I had to go and, and speak uh, a couple of times for him while he was in ICU with covid and um, but great church and they had a packed house it had been last time I was there was the day after uh, the uh, election in 2020 so the election was Tuesday I spoke on Wednesday and that was that was quite something but anyway uh, typically go once or twice a year but hadn't been there since then so it was really neat to see our friends and they had a packed house had to bring in extra tables and chairs and uh, really encouraging, but that was Satan, the Antichrist, and the Grand Conspiracy. That's available in the video section at our website. Then we moved from there over to Spokane, Washington. I spoke uh, twice there. Actually, my first message there was the Anatomy of Deception. Uh, that's chapter 11, essentially, in the Spirit of the Antichrist book. And then in the second hour, we had uh, just some really crazy things happen. Uh, you know, the Lord... Um, uh, you know, really blessed, but and, and we had no technical issues in the first hour, and we had come Saturday to set up and run through all the technical stuff, but for some reason, the second hour, the devil kind of came in and did not like what we were talking about, which was the Hegelian dialectic and geoengineering, and so we had technical difficulties uh, that were really awkward and created about a 10-minute pause, and then uh, in further uh, just unfortunate things happening. We had a lady collapse in the midst of the message and had to be taken out by ambulance, and that created a problem. So anytime you speak the truth in a clear gospel, the devil hates it. And we've seen this again and again and again, especially since March 21st when the book came out. But God is faithful, and we got through it, and it was really, again, a fruitful time of ministry. And then I did a short devotional last week. You know, normally on Tuesdays, uh, I have the privilege of being part of the Christian Underground News Network, a, a weekly podcast, um, and I'm the standing guest on Tuesdays. 
But uh, Curtis Chamberlain, the director of that ministry and the leader of the podcast, he got sick. So he had uh, texted me Monday night and said, hey, I'm not going to be able to do the show tomorrow. So I thought, well, I'll just do a quick uh, devotional. So prayed about it and put together some thoughts. And that's available at uh, our podcast channel, wherever you listen to podcasts. What does it really mean uh, to be blessed? I was just thinking about, you know, when you drive on these trips, you have a lot of windshield time, a lot of time to think. And Wendy and I were kind of rehearsing a lot of the Lord's blessings in our life and our journey, and, and it was great to, uh, to just think about uh, God's blessing, and so that's what we talked about. Uh, well, we've uh, kind of taken a break the last two weeks from our midweek series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical. That'll kick back up again this Wednesday. Really looking forward to it. We're going to get into limited atonement and what that means and what the Bible teaches about that and so forth, and is that biblical. So hope you'll join us Wednesdays either in person here at Plum Creek Chapel, or you can always live stream it uh, as well. So we are uh, kind of getting near the end of the end times in our study of uh, what lies ahead, and today we're going to finish out a few of those things that we've been talking about the last few weeks that kind of happen after the millennium. So if we put this uh, end times chart up, the things that happen after the millennium but prior to the eternal state. So if you see on the far right there of your screen, uh, you'll notice uh, you know, the, in purple there the messianic kingdom. Of course, the God's uh, plan of the ages involves coming full circle back to the kingdom uh, when Christ, the eternal Son of God, comes back, takes the throne, rules with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice as the Prince of Peace. Um, this is really goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God told the serpent that someday he, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would crush his head, would destroy him. And, of course, that mortal wound occurred at Calvary some 2,000 years ago in terms of human history. But uh, from God's plan, if you trace his plan through Scripture, you see it, it outlined in the unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It was amplified with additional unconditional covenants to David and uh, promised through Jeremiah, uh, also through Moses. The uh, land covenant was outlined in Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 30. And so you have God kind of putting the pieces together slowly over time in his written word as he revealed more and more of his plan. We call that progressive revelation. And uh, then you get into the Psalms, like David's Psalm in Psalm 2 that clearly talks about uh, the, anoint, the anointed one, his son, taking the throne someday. All of the minor prophets and major prophets speak to the coming kingdom for Israel when they will no longer be in bondage as they had been throughout the ages. Remember, Israel is God's chosen nation. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 9 through 11. We might wonder, why, why Israel? Why did God choose that nation? Well, you know, uh, can the, the clay say to the potter, you know, why did you make me like this? God is God. He chose who he chose. And Israel is the apple of his eye. And he has not forsaken Israel. He's not abandoned Israel. He's not replaced Israel with the church. God still has a future for national Israel. And that certainly became clear in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And it reminded us that, yeah, he's not through with Israel. Something's coming. Uh, but God's plan through Israel was to uh, bring in a global kingdom with Israel being in center stage and the temple, as Ezekiel describes it, being uh, the, the kind of the capital uh, center, Jerusalem being the capital center of the world. And, of course, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, taking the throne and ruling over the world from there. Uh, but a lot 
has to happen to get from point A to point B. And so the Bible tells a story that kind of comes full circle back to a sinless uh, state in the eternal state. And that's what we're uh, leading up to uh, here. So we're, if you want to look at it this way, we've been talking about everything that I've highlighted in yellow there with the second coming, the battle of Armageddon, and then ushering in the thousand-year reign on the old earth. Remember, uh, there, there's a distinction, which is why I charted out that way, between the millennial phase of the kingdom and the eternal state. And we're going to get, starting next week, into the eternal state and kind of talk about some of these great characteristics that you see in the right-hand column there. Uh, but in the meantime, there's some things that have to happen as we transition from the millennial phase into the eternal state. By the way, why do we call that first thousand years uh, the millennium, or why, why do we mark out that thousand years? Where does that come from? It comes straight from Scripture, right? Revelation 20 tells us that it's going to be a 1,000-year reign. Now, you have to compare Scripture to Scripture. Sometimes you'll see people talk uh, about the kingdom, and they'll call it the millennial kingdom, as if it's only a 1,000 years. But the testimony of Scripture is that once Christ comes back and takes the throne, he's going to reign forever and ever. And it says, of his kingdom there shall be no end. And uh, he will take the throne of his father David forever. So the kingdom is actually eternal, but it begins in this old earth, sold under sin, and for a thousand years, and that's what we're going to talk about today, why, why does God have that in his plan? Uh, he'll reign on the old earth, but then the old earth will be uh, destroyed. So with that kind of background and review, let's uh, pick up, uh, where we left off last time, uh, we talked about the judgment of Satan. Actually, let's let's uh, let's put it this way: um, we talked about these four different things that have to happen before we get into the eternal state. We talked about the judgment of Satan and his demons. We looked at several passages about that, and then today we're going to pick up with the judgment of the old earth and heaven, and then the great white throne judgment of believers. Remember, all of these judgments. Uh, we've outlined in our uh, chart book, the Not By Works book of theological charts, diagrams, and illustrations. And so it kind of gives you the scriptural basis for it, who's involved in it, and what the judgment is. Uh, so uh, we talked about Satan's judgments, and I won't review all of this, but his final rebellion at the end of the millennium. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked a lot about kind of how that battle compares to other battles, Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. By the way, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but all of the players in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war are in the headlines once again. And um, it's my belief, uh, and, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but all of this material is in our book, What Lies Ahead, same name as this series, and uh, it's a comprehensive eschatology, you know, end times book. But in there, I suggest and we can't be dogmatic about the exact timing of, of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, but I suggest that it happens after the rapture, but prior to the start of the tribulation. So sometime in this little section here. So the rapture happens, then all chaos breaks loose on the earth, and then that's when I believe the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 happen. So again, just one more indication as all of those uh, players that are mentioned at the beginning of Ezekiel 38 there, you know, Russia, Turkey, Syria, as they all kind of 
get prominent again, it just makes you wonder. Uh, we can't set a date. You know, uh, I talk to a lot of people in our travels, and you know, sometimes we come across people who suggest that, well, the rapture is going to happen. You know, it's such and such a time of year. It's only going to happen in, in accordance with the Feast of Trumpets, or you know, it's going to happen in the fall, or it's going to happen, you know, after a certain length of time. You know, that the that the you know they allegorize certain passages of Scripture and suggest that the Bible tells us the church age is only going to be 2,000 years old. Well, we can't do that. That's a, that's a violation of basic hermeneutics, that literal, grammatical, historically. You can't take what the text says and conjure up some meaning in your head and apply some symbolic meaning to it. We've got to let the text say what it says. So I'm not one that, that tries to make those kinds of predictions or speculations. I believe in the doctrine of imminency, which means the rapture could happen at any time. It could have happened at any time in the last 2,000 years, and it could happen today, or not for 100 years. But that said, we have to balance imminency with the teaching of Jesus to watch for the signs of the times. And if we see the stage being set for end times events, for things like we see over here in the chart, if we see the stage being set for a one-world system that we know the Antichrist is going to rule over, if we see the stage being set for a battle involving the nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38, if we see the stage being set for a, uh, Israel becoming a center stage again, or the temple being rebuilt, or a one-world currency, all of those things are going to happen during or be in place during that seven-year period. So it's natural as we see them falling into place to think, well, we could be pretty close to those things. And if we're close to those things, then, of course, the rapture comes first, so we must be closer to the rapture, too. So, again, I would stop short of guaranteeing it, certainly biblically or theologically. But if you ask me my best guess, my studied opinion, it would be that the rapture is going to happen very soon. Uh, you know, um, We certainly know that the, the Luciferians that are trying to take over the world, which I, it's the whole premise of my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, they're pushing hard for it to happen by 2025 to 2030. You know, as I've said many times, Klaus Schwab, who's at the, in the driver's seat right now of all of this one world globalism, uh, he's 80-something years old, and he really, really wants to see this lifelong satanic dream of his come to fruition before he dies. So they are really pushing... Uh, to see a one-world system in place, one-world government, one-world currency, no national sovereignty, all of those things in place by the mid to late 2020s. Now, does that mean it's going to happen? Of course not. God's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable. God's the one who's in control. But it's helpful for us to know what the enemy's plotting and trying, you know. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Your enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So, I, you know, I look at that and I, and, it, and I pay attention to it and I kind of see the stage being set. I don't fear it. I don't panic because of it. I recognize who wins in the end and how God is far more powerful than Satan and greater is he who is in me than he was in the world. Remember, the whole premise of Spirit of the Antichrist is 1 John 4, 3, that tells us one Antichrist, capital A, is coming. That's this, you know, one who is unveiled when he signs the peace treaty in Daniel 9.27, starting that seven-year period. But 1 John 4.3 goes on to say, even now many Antichrists has come, and the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us. The very next verse reminds us, 
greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we need to keep it in, in balance. But, um, you know, I think as a lot of people look at kind of world events first and then bring their interpretation to the scripture and try to make it fit. And uh, I just, I, I think that's a mistake. And, and that's really no different than what, uh, you know, non-dispensationalists do that, that don't believe in Israel and don't, they think the church has replaced Israel, called replacement theology. Uh, they kind of bring their presuppositions to the text and interpret the text in light of their ideas in their mind rather than letting the text speak plainly. But the text does speak plainly, and it clearly tells us the rapture could happen at any moment. Um, you know, and uh, I've talked about that previously in this series, so I won't go back and rehash that. But we have a chapter on that in the book, uh, and it's pretty rock-solid doctrine. You can't really get around it. Um, that the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. So uh, we talked about, um, you know, Satan's judgment, and we uh, we kind of looked at Revelation 20 verse by verse there that last time we met and how that final rebellion is crushed. But what I want to do this morning is to ask this question, and I'm happy to answer your questions or take your comments as well, but why not go, when Christ comes back, why not go straight into the eternal state? Why do we have this 1,000-year period on the old earth? Any thoughts on that? Give unbelievers another chance. Okay, Paul said to give unbelievers another chance. Or, yeah, more time, right? Okay. Yes? Yeah, great point. So Barry said, to show that even in the most ideal conditions, perfect conditions, man will still rebel against God. In other words, the heart of man is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah said, right? So this really goes to the heart of understanding your anthropology. And it's often been said, if you don't understand biblical anthropology you'll never understand biblical soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. So secular, atheistic, humanists, you know, their understanding of anthropology is, you know, that man is billions of years old, he evolved from a wet rock, he crawled out of a cave, and all this kind of, our ancestors are apes and so forth. But we believe, and I'm going to be talking about this in the second hour today, that all of our beliefs have to be based on Scripture. This is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And so the biblical anthropology... Uh, is really the only anthropology that matters. And to Barry's point, when mankind fell in the garden, it, it corrupted the image of God in man. So remember in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, God's word tells us that he created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Uh, that doesn't mean that we are gods, it just means that God created a divine design, a pattern, a template, if you will, according to which he wanted to fashion the, the highest pinnacle of creation. So he created man on the sixth day. This was his final piece of the puzzle. And only mankind was created in the image of God. But, and that means that we have corollaries to all of God's attributes. Not, you know, for example, God is omniscient. We have intellect. We're not omniscient, but we have intellect. You know, uh, God is sovereign. We have free will. Okay, we're not sovereign, but we have the freedom to choose. 
all of those things. Well, the, those qualities and characteristics of mankind, when we sinned in the garden, when we ate the forbidden fruit, uh, became tarnished, became corrupted. And, and as we're going to talk about in a moment, it, it affected not just mankind, but it affected all of cre the created realm. So it's because of sin that we have natural disasters, that we have, you know, thorns on rose bushes, poison ivy, you know, those, that's, you know, predatory relationships between animals and those things. And remember, when we come back to the kingdom, it's going to be the, the, the lamb and, and, and wolf will play together, the baby will lie by the cobra's pit, because all of those things are once again restored. But the, the curse of sin really affected mankind, and and what's important to understand about that is that according to Paul's later revelation under the inspiration of the Spirit, that you know, sin and the sinfulness of mankind is passed down through the blood. We don't become a sinner when we sin. We're born sinners. And Paul spells that out in Romans 5.12. Wherefore by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. It's also in the Old Testament, David said, at the moment of conception, I was a sinner, King David said. So uh, the sinfulness of mankind is part and parcel to the humanity of mankind now, post-fall. And, uh, you know, what, does, uh, what was the consequence of sin? God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And uh, someone on this con at one of these conferences on this last trip asked me, well, how did Adam and Eve know what that meant because they had no concept of death well yeah they did they didn't have a concept of death the way you and i think about death but we need to remember to use you know to have biblical definitions for biblical words and as i have talked about in our series on calvinism the biblical term death just means separate separate separation right so we think of death in the physical sense only you know someone dies you put them in a coffin you bury them in the ground right <laughs> That's our picture of death. The biblical concept of death means separation. And there are all kinds of ways in which that term is used in Scripture, but they always involve separation. So at physical death, the soul is separated from the body. That's the definition of physical death. Uh, Adam and Eve may not have understood physical death, but they understood the concept of separation. So think of it this way. When God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, what they heard was, in the day you eat thereof, we will become separate from our Creator and will no longer have access to Him. And that's what happened. Spiritual death involves separation of mankind from God. So it's separation. Physical death, soul from the body. Spiritual death separates mankind from God. And that separation is hardwired into our DNA post-fall. And everyone born, and we're all ultimately sons of Adam, that's what Paul talks about in Romans 5. We're sons of Adam, we need to by faith become sons of Christ. Yeah? Well, I have a long-standing uh, question mark that I'd like to put up. With, uh, and you can, I'm sure you can help me with it. Um, well, I'll do my best. <laughs> this is a long-standing, earth-shattering, never-before-answered question that has plagued Mike for his entire 40 years. I wanted to go low because I really wasn't sure and the last thing I want to do is overestimate so I just came in really low. Go ahead. Well the question is um, when if at the moment of conception you're a sinner by definition. Right at the moment of conception you're a sinner. Then you're born. Yep. You live for 
Okay. You live, you're born, you live for one month, and you die. And babies pretty much have no way to understand the gospel. Right. So babies have no way to understand the gospel. So I know where you're going with this. So really, you don't even have to be born. So the question is, what about aborted babies, miscarriages, all of that? You're a human being from the moment of conception. So it's my belief that the one and only thing that Scripture, the one condition that Scripture says we must meet to go to heaven, which is faith, if it's impossible for a person to exercise faith, they're covered by God's grace. I've written about this elsewhere, and I know... You know, Calvinists would disagree. A Calvinist would say, well, if that baby is elect, he goes to heaven. If he's not, he goes to hell. That's what Calvinists teach. I don't believe that. I believe it would be inconsistent with God's nature to hold someone accountable to do something that's impossible for them to do. So mentally handicapped uh, people, again, babies that aren't able to comprehend. Because you, you have to, according to Romans 10, you have to hear, know, understand, and believe the gospel. You can't believe something you don't understand, right? How can they hear without a preacher? You can't, you know, hear something. You can't understand something you've never heard. You've got to hear it and understand it and believe it. So to, to believe the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and believe that and accept his free gift paid for by his blood, you've got to be able to comprehend it. So that's my view. Um, I've written about this in different places. I'm happy to send you some more information on that. But that's different, I might add than the question of those who've never heard because the Bible speaks to those who've never heard and it's not impossible for those who've never heard to believe. They have the capacity to believe. They've just never heard. And Romans 1 says if they will respond to general revelation, there is a God, they know in their conscience, they know from creation, God will send them special revelation so that they can hear and believe the gospel. So they're not, they don't, they're not off the hook. If not hearing the gospel means you automatically go to heaven, then really the worst thing we can do is send evangelists out into the world to tell people the gospel. But the best way to make sure everybody goes to heaven is to say, don't tell anybody. You know, right? So the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. It tells us just the opposite. So having never heard the gospel doesn't get you off the hook. Uh, you, you know, Romans 1 is quite clear on that. So, but if you do not have the ability to do the one thing the Bible says, which is believe, either because your mental level is not there or you're not old enough to really put two and two together, I believe you're covered by God's grace. That's my answer. So, uh, but just to finish the point, and this goes back to what Barry said about why we have the millennium. So, the, when man sinned, when we sinned, that uh, depravity that entered us that 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 now uh, characterizes our relationship with God we are you know born dead in our trespasses and sins uh, is is not just something outward it's inward it, it's the very nature of who we are and you know that uh, quality as Jeremiah said makes us desperately wicked and you know we're not inclined to do good and so forth. And so uh, the Spirit of God, of course, is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment in this present age. Jesus said that in John 16. Uh, and, you know, Jesus also said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So the gospel is going forth. It's a universal call. Whosoever will may come. In fact, the Bible ends with those uh, that great invitation 
in um, uh, chapter uh, 21, I think it is, let me find it here, when he says, uh, whosoever will let him come, let him drink freely, no, actually 22, the very end, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, let him who thirsts, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely, whoever desires, that's five verses from the end of the Bible. So it's a universal call, but uh, we have to receive the free gift, and that's what we've been talking about on Wednesdays. A, free, a gift freely offered has to be freely received. If it's forced upon you and you have no choice, that's not a gift. So back to why the millennium. So today, especially in this age that the Bible calls the present evil age, when things are getting worse and worse, deception is getting greater and greater, 2 Timothy 3.13, one might argue, now they'd be wrong, but still they might argue, well, you know, it's not fair. I was deceived or I was at so many other competing satanic agendas out there leading me astray. And, you know, that's not fair, right? So one purpose of the millennium is to, you know, demonstrate, as Barry said, that even under the most ideal conditions, when Christ is ruling with perfect justice, so for a thousand years, there'll be no accidental deaths. There'll no, be no innocent people being convicted of crimes. There'll be no guilty people getting off scot-free. It'll be complete justice. Even then, the heart of man is desperately wicked. And even then, some will refuse to believe the gospel and receive the free gift of eternal life. Um, in Acts 13, where we're going to be today, uh, Paul is you know, heading out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and John Mark, and they get to Cyprus, uh, the island of Cyprus, yeah, as they leave Syria, Antioch, and they, they take the boat over to the island of Cyprus. And then uh, Luke continues to follow their journey they had from Cyprus up to southern Galatia. And there was a phrase in here, see if I can find it, um, as Paul preaches this powerful message and kind of relates God's salvation, and he, he makes reference to um, eternal life. Let's see here, hang on, I'll find it. Anyway, it's it's in there. But he this is this is the gospel message, is that the, you know as the word of God was being spread, what was the message? It wasn't just that you'll be happy or more fulfilled or content it's that you can now have eternal life and this was a pivotal moment in the history of the church because it's when the gospel by intention goes they set out to go and were commissioned by the church in Antioch to go to the Gentiles I mean we had Peter going to Cornelius you know that was a divine vision God said go to Cornelius but this was you know much bigger than that so uh, even during the millennium, people will need to be saved. Otherwise, they'll die in their sin, as Jesus said in John uh, 8. Uh, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. And that means eternity separated from God, eternal death. So we're all born spiritually dead. Someday we'll experience physical death if the Lord doesn't come back in our lifetime. But there will be others who experience eternal death, which is eternal separation from God if you die in your sin. So you've got to have that sin uh, remedied. Jesus paid the price, uh, but it doesn't mean everybody's saved. You still have to receive the gift, you know. So 
I think that's exactly right, that the, the, one of the purposes of the millennium is to show that, uh, you know, mankind, uh, you know, is, has nobody to blame but himself. If you don't trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, don't point the finger at God. Don't point the finger at your parents or your circumstances or your upbringing or your poor me. Look in the mirror. Because everybody has the opportunity to hear the gospel. And today, as I said, God makes Himself known through general revelation. Providence, nature, creation, conscience, those things. People know there's a God. They may deny Him. You know, the psalmist said, a fool has said in his heart there's no God. You know, they may foolishly you know, try to pretend there's no God, but everybody knows there's a God. Right? In the millennium, it won't, we won't need general revelation to know there's a God. God will be sitting in bodily form on the throne, giving the state of the world address every January. You know? So even then, everybody will have heard the gospel. And that's what Jesus promised in Matthew 24, that prior to his return to take the throne, which means by the end of the tribulation, to go back to that chart, by the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back, uh, everybody on earth will have heard the gospel. What does he say? Matthew 24, um, I think it's around verse 13. Matthew 24, verse 14, excuse me. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So everybody on earth will have heard the gospel by the time, and certainly during the millennium everybody will hear the gospel because Jesus Christ will be, you know, ruling the world. Uh, and yet, and yet, some people will still reject uh, the gospel. So I think that's the... The best answer to that question, obviously the Bible doesn't spell that out for us in so many words, but it seems logical. Um, I mean, ultimately, what we can say with absolute certainty is that we have the millennium because that's what God reveals in Scripture we have. It's part of the sovereign plan of God, right? He clearly tells us the order of things. Christ comes back in Revelation 19, Revelation 20, which last time I checked comes after chapter 19, we have the thousand-year reign. So clearly... It's part of God's sovereign plan, but if we were to look at it theologically, we might say it's in order to give man one final opportunity to receive the grace of God by faith. Yeah. Um, one question I have about that, that uh, scenario is um, it's the thousand years is kind of more of the same as an under special conditions, meaning man hasn't changed. Right. We already know what happened, what the first, you know, 2,000 time, you know, plus years have shown to mankind. Um, in the next thousand years, if, you, if it's predicted to be by the Bible or stated by the Bible to be more of the same, who are we actually trying to show? In other words, so who, who are we trying to showing that we're still sinners and we're still broken, who would that message really be uh, intended for? Yeah. And why, does, why would it even matter uh, at, at that point? So the question is, you know, 
if the thousand years is essentially more of the same with eventually sinful people rejecting the gospel, you know, why does it even matter? That's kind of a Cliff's Notes version of the, of the question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's more of the same in terms of the anthropology that man is dead in his trespasses and sin. And by the way, let me interject. We have to remember that at the start of the millennium, everybody on earth is a believer in their physical bodies. Now, we will come back with Christ in our glorified bodies and rule and reign with Christ. There will be resurrected Old Testament believers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, so forth, that are in their glorified bodies. There will be tribulation believers that died or were martyred uh, that come back in their resurrected bodies during the kingdom. So there will be a lot of people in the kingdom in their glorified eternal bodies. But there will also be a population on earth of people in their physical bodies. And those are the ones that when Jesus comes back in Matthew 25, he says, um, you know, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. The sheep, remember the sheep and goats? So all unbelievers at Christ's second coming are cast into the everlasting fire. The believers come into the kingdom. So at, on day one of the kingdom, it's all believers. But over time, uh, they have children. Those children are born dead in their trespasses and sin like every human being. And they will need to be saved. And so over time, so the scenario that we've been talking about assumes that we're into the tribulation by some, I mean into the millennium rather, by some number of years. Um, but back to your question, you know, I think it matters for the reasons we've just tried to articulate that um, it's one thing for man to reject the gospel today uh, when Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says he's the god of this age, blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Uh, he is, you know, a, you know, actively at work in spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. Um, it's one thing for people to reject the gospel today. Now, the end result's the same, and again, they're still without excuse. But it's quite another during the millennium when Satan is in prison. It's not called the present evil age. He's not roaming the earth seeking people to devour. Uh, he's not blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Yet, mankind is still inclined to you know, to reject the gospel. And, uh, you know, everyone has the same option, same choice. It's still a universal call. Remember Revelation 22, which I just read a moment ago, comes after the millennium. So it's a principle that transcends all the ages. Uh, but I think that's why. I think it's just, it's a, it's a manifestation of God's amazing grace. It's like, uh, like we said, it's, it's one, one, op, one final test and one final opportunity for man, unbelievers, to receive the gospel. Yeah, Nancy, and then we'll come back to you. Um, so there, in the millennium, there will be some death. I mean, some death? Yeah, you had mentioned there won't be like accidental death, but those people that do die during the millennium, yeah. when are they resurrected? So, and what do you think they would be dying from? Yeah, the great question. So, the question is about death in the millennium. Uh, there won't be accidental death, but, but there will be some death, and what will they die from, and so forth. So I, I've mentioned this before, uh, and if you're interested, just email me, and I'll send you the article. But I actually have a, a lengthy journal article called Death in the Millennium, where I outline all of this. But the short answer is, the short answer is death during the millennium, as I put, compare Scripture with Scripture, appears to be simply as a consequence of sin. 
So believers won't die, in my view, but unbelievers can die. And so, uh, and it won't be accidental, it'll be punitive. So it'll be like death penalty situations, but not somebody getting hit by a car or shot in a mass shooting or something. It won't be that kind of death, but there will still be death. Um, but as far as believers, believers won't die. And so the question then that you followed up with that very astutely was, when do those people that get saved during the millennium get their glorified body? Well, that gets into the translation of millennial believers. So remember, we already know from the biblical record that there's one group of people explicitly stated in Scripture that will not experience physical death. They will get their glorified body as by way of translation, not resurrection. You follow me? That's believers of the church age. First Thessalonians 4, we shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we all shall be changed, meaning translated, into our glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes it even in more detail. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed, meaning believers alive at the rapture. And he says, what does that look like? Well, that means this mortal must put on immortality, this corruption, this corruptible, our bodies must put on incorruption, and we will be changed. So that's called the translation of believers at the rapture. Now, the Bible never describes a translation of believers in the millennium, but we know, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom. Paul makes that very clear. And we know that those who enter the millennium in their physical bodies, and let's say their children who come along later that believe the gospel and get saved, so you have a whole group of believers in their physical bodies during the millennium, we know that to get from point A uh, to point B, to get from... Wow, that's way over there. I need a pointer. To get from this part into this part, at some point, those believers in their physical bodies have to put on immortality, have to put on incorruption. They have to be translated into a glorified body. So this is a theological conclusion, not an exegetical one. I can't cite a chapter and verse that says, Thus saith the Lord, like we can with raptured, with the people alive at the rapture. That's very clear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, as I just said. But we, we know in order for Scripture to be true, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, and that these people are in their flesh and blood bodies, blood bodies there must be some kind of translation. And so uh, that's the way I describe it in the book, is sort of putting two and two together. When does that happen? Now this gets into more speculation. We know it has to happen, or Scripture is not true. Uh, but when does it happen? In the book, in the paper that I mentioned, Death and the Millennium, I speculate that it happens for believers at the moment they get saved. But, you know, uh, that's those that weren't already saved. So it seems like God allows those saved believers that enter the Millennium to go along for a number of years procreating, you know, having children and so forth. But then once those children believe the Gospel and get saved, at whatever point that is, at that point, they get their translated body, perhaps. That's one option. And then the rest of them, the one that started at the millennium, a thousand years later, they're still alive. They, just prior to the destruction of the old heaven and old earth, they get their glorified bodies. So I want to very quickly, let me just, can, are you sure? Okay. Um, I didn't want to leave anybody out, but I just really quickly, because I want to be able to start next week on the eternal state. 
uh, talk about um, the destruction of the uh, old heaven and the old earth. Why must the old heaven and the old earth be destroyed? Well, I think we've already answered that. Because of the curse of sin. So if you go back to the creation account in Genesis 3, after the fall, Genesis 3.17, God is speaking to Adam and he says, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, what's the consequence? Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Listen, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So when I talk about you know, in the kingdom, in the eternal state, there will no longer be thorns on rose bushes or the, the curse of sin on the earth caused there to be... That's straight out of Genesis 3 here. You know, it's because of, the, of sin that thorns and thistles appeared. So the old earth is under the curse of sin too. And God can't just put a band-aid on that. He has to make it new in the same way that he makes us new. We are reborn. Remember John 3, what Jesus talked talk to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. You have to have a spiritual rebirth. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Same thing is true for all of the created universe. It's got to be uh, destroyed. And by the way, this is not a, you know, a, a, a renovation, but it's a complete destruction and recreation. And this was predicted by Christ. Uh, you know, it's anticipated by the heaven uh, and earth themselves. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, uh, then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. See, at the great white throne, it's all coming to you know, fruition at the end of the millennium. This is the final judgment, the end of the millennium. Even the heavens and earth know our time is short. We're done. This is, you know, we're under sin. Uh, Peter describes it quite uh, clearly in Second Peter uh, chapter 3. I don't know how people can get around this verse who suggest you know, that the earth won't be destroyed. But he says, But the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition for ungodly men. And he goes on, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens... Remember, day of the Lord is a prophetic phrase that can refer to anything from the rapture to the tribulation to the second coming to the great white throne, depends on the context in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So, you know, this isn't a fact in dispute if you believe the plain teaching of Scripture. And then, of course, Revelation 21 talks about the new heavens and the new earth that come into existence after that. So, uh, that kind of gets us into the new, the, uh, new heavens and the new earth or the eternal state. And next week, we'll pick up there and uh, begin to describe that, you know, look at Revelation 21, that beautiful picture of what life will be like uh, in that uh, day and age. So, you know, you can get a glimpse of it here in our, in our chart, uh, but, you know, what a day that will be.
Yes. Did you, did you have a question still? I just was going to follow up with the thought about the earlier question I had. Um, would it be fair to say that uh, the intended audience for the demonstration of the millennium is really the all of the saints and their glorified bodies, basically, uh, it's almost like preaching it, to the choir at that point where you're saying, I just want to show you yeah, is the, that this is still going on and that this wasn't just happening yeah. in, your, in your world, this is happening in this perfect world. And yeah, I mean, I think that's guys. part of it. I don't know if I would say, though the question is, is the intended audience for the millennium the believers in their glorified bodies to show you, hey, look, see, this is still going on. I think that's all part of it. I mean, I think ultimately it's the fulfillment of prophecy. So again, you go all the way back to Genesis 12, and God has promised that there will be a kingdom, a throne, a temple, uh, a territory, all on this present earth. So to fulfill Scripture and keep God from being a liar, you've got to have the millennium. That's the short answer. But as far as the implications of it, absolutely, it's... It's a demonstration of God's grace to the whole world, to believers and unbelievers alike, to the church. It's, it's, a, it's a key moment in human history that will, I think, have a lot of uh, ramifications and teach us a lot of things about who God is. Yes? That was it? Yeah. I think it's for, yeah, the question was going to be who's for. I didn't know I was a prophet. That's for, I can read minds. Wow. I should try monetize that somehow. I don't know how, but anyway. All right, well, let's uh, dismiss. Uh, we'll come back together here at around 10 o'clock. Uh, for those of you live streaming, the live stream of the message in the worship hour will start typically around 10.30 Mountain Time. Uh, and we'll see you back at that time.